Welcome to this bonus episode of News Points on the Air, a production of the North American Division of Seventh-day Adventists. I'm your host, Milan Medley. This is the time of year where love is heavily emphasized, whether it's in commercials, social media posts, or even sermons. It's everywhere. Love is beautiful, but sometimes it's manipulated to bring harm. This is what we're here to talk about today. We're echoing the mantra of NAD's End It Now by saying love shouldn't hurt. This episode continues the conversation we began in December about abuse within Adventism. The guest for this bonus episode is Renee Drum, professor of social work at the University of Southern Mississippi. She led a study on the effects of intimate partner violence among Seventh-day Adventist church attendees. The study has made her one of the top experts on this topic within the denomination in North America. One of the main findings from the study was the prevalence of emotional abuse. Renee is here to define abuse and walk us through her study. It's wonderful to have you here, Renee. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Can you briefly um, uh, define what emotional abuse is? Okay, the, I'll, I'll start with just a general definition of abuse, first of all. Okay. Um, you see, because people in marriages bicker, right? They argue, they have tips, um, they get mad at each other. And um, what research shows is some of those marriages are just as happy as those that don't fight, that don't um, have arguments or conflict. Hmm. But the thing is, with abuse, the objective of behavior, of negative behavior towards someone else, the objective is to control. Hmm. So when there is a, a negative action for the purpose of control, then we call it abuse. And so to, to put someone down, to call them names, to insult them, to uh, call them stupid, uh, for the purpose of being the, the big person in the mm -hmm. relationship, the one that is smarter, the one that needs to be obeyed, um, that's abusive because it's an abuse of power. What prompted you to start this study? Okay. Well, it starts back to the beginning of my career in social work. Uh, I got my social work degree, my master's degree from Michigan State uh, in 82. And uh, then went off for an adventure in Gillette, Wyoming. And uh, in Gillette, Wyoming, they had written a grant for a safe house. And part of the specifications for that grant was they needed a master's level social worker. And in that little teeny town, there were very few. In fact, I don't think they had any. So I was maybe the sole applicant for that position. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> so I was hired as a safe house director. And uh, so that started my career and uh, learned a lot. It was a steep learning curve about domestic violence and sexual assault. And um, it was a very good um, 
educational experience for me. Yeah. So, uh, that, that's, that's kind of the background mm-hmm. uh, going into it. And uh, then when I was teaching at Andrews University, uh, my research group, the Institute for Prevention of Addiction, uh, received a, a grant from a family foundation, the Winifred Stevens Foundation, to do a study on domestic violence in the Adventist Church. And uh, the leaders of the IPA um, didn't have the expertise uh, to, to really engage in that process. So they came to me and because they knew my background and so asked if I would do the study. And so I did. And that's how it all launched. Had, had a similar study ever, ever been done specifically about um, the Adventist church and like the effects of abuse within our denomination? Okay. I am not sure if a study had ever been done, but mm-hmm. I am sure that no study was ever published, mm-hmm. no, no results, no findings were ever published if they did a study. And so that's why I'm really a proponent of if you're doing a study, do it to the, to the level that you can get it published. And that way you leave a legacy, you leave um, some information for the next generation to build on. And so for, for us, we were starting from scratch in terms of the Adventist culture, the Adventist population. Uh, we fashioned our study after uh, the big studies at that time. Uh, so we had a lot of um, scientific reasoning for the questions that we ask and how we ask them. But um, as far as Adventist populations, we hadn't seen anything that was published. Wow. So since you were starting from scratch, as you say, what were the mechanics behind conducting this study? How did you um, choose your sample group and even just mention, you know, the scientific uh, methodology? So can you unpack that? Well, we started off with the literature review. So we looked for anything that had already been done and that included instruments. So we started gathering instruments and uh, developing our research questions. And at that time, uh, we were fortunate that uh, the, the head of the Institute for Church Ministries, uh, Roger Dudley was there at Andrews at that time. And he had been doing research in Adventist congregations. Hmm. He helped us with the sampling strategy. And his suggestion was that we do a stratified random sample of churches because you know the highest level of sampling that we can do is a probability sampling and of course that's what we wanted but it wasn't going to be possible with the information that was available to us because you have to have a complete list of all churches and all church members and that that was not going to work so Hmm. uh, best that we could do scientifically was a stratified random sample of churches and so the, the funder wanted us to start in the North Pacific Union, where their foundation uh, was headed. Okay. And, uh, so we, as part of our institutional review board process, we needed to have the unions okay. And about how long did um, actually executing um, the, pro- the formal process, how long did it take? from, you know, getting the approval to actually conducting and, you know, talking to um, the people you um, studied? 
Okay. Well, there were there were two there are two different studies maybe that you're thinking of. The first study was a, a survey study, and so for that one we needed to get the union's permission because we were actually going to go into the churches and distribute surveys there mm. um, in, in that sample of churches. And uh, so for that study, it took uh, at least a full year um, to develop the study to the point of submission to the review board and then um, getting it approved and uh, then developing the sample and getting the sample. And then longer time to do the analysis and the writing and the publishing, so. It was several years by the time the first article was published. Wow. And survey, that was the word I was looking for earlier, not, uh, not study. But um, so how many people did you end up surveying for that first one that you mentioned? That first one had yeah. 1,431 responses. Wow. That's, that's incredible. <laughs> yes. We, we worked hard to get that sample. Yeah. yeah specific age range or, you know, what exactly were you looking for? We um, targeted um, people that were sitting in the pews on a Sabbath morning. Okay. Primarily, of course, it would be Adventists, but we weren't going to exclude non-Adventist people that were there visiting because we wanted to have from our results um, things that would help anyone that was in the pew. So that's why we targeted adults in the pew. So anyone that was over 18 was mm-hmm. eligible to take the survey. Uh, we separated men from the women. We asked women to sit on one side of the sanctuary and men on the other so that partners could have complete privacy as they filled out the survey. Oh, wow. I was thinking for some reason, I was thinking kind of like a mail-in survey, but this was in person. Primarily, yes. We did have that as an option. We say mm-hmm. if, you, if you don't feel comfortable because a lot of the data was collected on Sabbath. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if for some reason you don't feel comfortable filling it out today and if that could have been their partner's influence too, then take this home with you. Here's a prepaid envelope. You can send it in. And we had less than 100 um, mail in, probably less than 50 even. If I'm remembering correctly. So what were some examples, if you may share, uh, of questions that you asked? We asked about prevalence was the first thing. Um, Mm -hmm. Have you, a yes or no, have you in your adulthood with an intimate partner? Okay, so that's the lead in Mm -hmm. for then 30 different behaviors that they might have experienced. And then, so we ask it in two ways. Have you ever experienced this in your adulthood with an intimate partner? And um, in the last 12 months, have you experienced this? So we wanted recent victimization and lifetime victimization in terms of lifetime, meaning just adulthood. And another place on the survey, we asked about childhood abuse. So we wanted to be really clear. This is just adult intimate partner violence. Mm. So that's about uh, emotional abuse, um, physical abuse, sexual abuse, um, as some some main headings and what they experienced. We also asked different ways that they had um, asked for help or gotten help. We wanted to know how successful those efforts were. 
because again, it, past behavior predicts future behavior. So if some things were very helpful for people, we wanted to know what they were. We also wanted them to make some guesses as to the kind of interventions that they would be most open to if those things were available to them. Um, and so we asked about different types of programming, for example, um, programming for children, um, dating violence, uh, workshops, workshops for couples, workshops for healing. So, you know, a variety of things. And then we also had a section on um, childhood abuse, just a very small, has this ever happened to you in your, in your childhood, in your past? Wow. Wow. And so, yeah, I was, that was the word I was about to use, very comprehensive. So once you uh, got the data and, you know, crunched the numbers and did your analysis, what were some of the main uh, takeaways? I'm sure there was a lot because you covered so many layers, but what were some of the big um, kind of aha or, you know, big takeaways? One of the things was that uh, our numbers, our prevalence rates, were about on par with the, the major studies that had been done in the U.S. And that was, uh, that was the best um, outcome for us because hmm. the theory was at that time that conservative Christians um, had a, a higher prevalence actually of domestic violence and partner violence hmm. and other US populations because of the patriarchal systems of thinking and behaving. So to have a result that was just on par and not worse than, um, that, that was actually a comfort to the, the funder and to the union where we uh, did this sample. Okay. So about on par, um, that was one of the big takeaways. Um, uh, emotional abuse was a, a lot stronger player than I anticipated. You know, we tend to think of physical abuse when we think of domestic violence, you know, somebody being hit, but the real damage the foundation for that um, is laid with emotional abuse. And um, so the prevalence of emotional abuse was very high and it was um, both male and female uh, victim survivors um, pretty evenly um, spaced in uh, emotional abuse issues. And what, um, maybe not just with the results, but with the overall process and primarily with your data collection, what surprised you throughout that whole process? I was surprised at how much, how crucially important it was to have victim survivors as part of each part of the process. Hmm. Um, I knew when it was time to get permission from the union um, that it was going to be a tough sell. I didn't realize how difficult it was going to be. Uh, the first obstacle was getting a meeting uh, with the folks that needed to be at the table that needed to vote on it. 
And if you're not already on the schedule a year in, in advance, uh, then it's hard to get on the schedule because that, their job is to be in meetings and they go from meeting to meeting to meeting. Mm -hmm. And uh, the only way that I was actually able to do that was um, I made email friends with the secretary who scheduled. And I said, hey, um, how's your dog doing? You know, <laughs> vacation this year. And it was a little process of that. Then finally I got a meeting. The second thing I knew I needed to have women there um, around the table as well. And so I said, can, can we possibly have some, some women that um, the, the committee members respect and to be part of this gathering, uh, hearing what we want to do. And so kind of at the last minute, they invited folks that were already in the building and, um, you know, I came prepared for this meeting. I, I, I didn't just show up. Right. Uh, I had my PowerPoint deck, 25 slides, three major points, you know, the whole thing. Went through it and there was a lot of grumbling and there was, it was not going well. And uh, then one woman said, I have something to say. And she said, this is important. I've been there. We need to do this study. And that was the end. Mm. That the vote was taken right after she spoke and it passed. And wow. Able to do the study. Yeah. Wow. So having victim survivors at the table at every step. That's yeah. I feel like you just took me to that room because I have goosebumps. That was powerful. Yeah, um, it was a powerful moment. And so that kind of dovetails into my next question about how have um, the results been received? You know, um, when 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 were your articles published? And then, like since then, since you've been sharing um, your findings, how you know when you go to different churches and conferences, what's the initial reaction? The initial reaction is um, kind of kind benevolence, um, maybe a pat on the head. Hmm. <laughs> um, the, the, the reaction actually of the union was uh, a relief because they were afraid that it was going to show that the rates were very high. And they knew that those um, findings would not be well received, but on par they could deal with. And at first there was a, a committee put together because that's how Adventist deal with <laughs> But it only met two or three times and then it was done. Um, so initially, you know, people, people were kind and they were receptive. And it, I, I had meetings at every level. I had a GC meeting, I had union meetings, I had some meetings at the conference level. So they were all kind and open, but not motivated. I would say not motivated to, to do something that I would mm -hmm. call do. Church entities um, have pre presentations. They present things. They have meetings and present things. And that's what they do. Um, they create policy statements as well. And those are important, 
I'm, I'm not saying that any of those things are not important, but as far as getting down to the pews and helping people that are in trouble, um, that's not gonna that's not gonna help it, as much as help is needed. Uh, we need interventions. We need strategies. We need um, a movement of people who are educated about these issues who can help people in local churches. We need our pastors to be educated so, so they're able to make a difference there in local congregations. Any uh, final thoughts you would like to share? Maybe not even on you know your study, but just about this topic um, in general. I, I think for people in the pews, for church members and, and pastors and church leaders, the biggest thing is to realize and accept that people on all levels of church involvement have been known to be abusive. There are people who have been in marriages and have been abused by people in high official positions. And so it needs to be within your awareness, within your consciousness, that this can happen. It doesn't mean that it always happens. You don't have to be suspicious of everyone, mm -hmm. but it needs to be there as a possibility. Otherwise, a high level of victim blame can happen. And you can feel, say, if someone shares with you, so-and-so's wife just said she was abused, and how can that be? Because her husband is so-and-so. Uh, then it's really her fault because she's crazy. So if you have an awareness that this can happen at any level, and you listen to a victim when she says, or when he says, I'm being abused mm -hmm. and affirm that it's not your fault. And here are some resources that can go a long way to make a big difference in our church. Thank you so much, Renee, for this time and for uh, sharing your passion. Um, it, it's, I, I really appreciate it. And I know people who hear it um, will definitely uh feel inspired by it if they want to learn more about your study um, or just follow you and your work how can someone um, read about your study uh, email me I think that's the easiest thing okay and it's my name Renee R-E-N-E -E, my middle initial D and then my last name Drum D-R-U-M-M so R-E-N-E-T-D-R-U-M-M at gmail.com. All right. So a personal connection, folks, like, you know, <laughs> Absolutely. that's great. That's great. And thank you again, Renee. Thank you. Glad to be part of this. Thank you for tuning in to this bonus episode of News Points on the Air. There are incredible free resources available on enditnownorthamerica.org. If you want to help prevent abuse in your faith community, that's enditnownorthamerica.org, then click on resources. News Points on the Air is produced, edited, and hosted by me, Milan Medley. 
Executive producers are Dan Weber, Julio Munoz, and Kimberly Moran. Graphics are by Jonathan LaPointe. Listen and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. Share with your family and friends. Give us a five-star rating and a glowing review. Also, be sure to subscribe to News Points. It's our weekly digital newsletter with news stories, special announcements, and ministry resources. Visit nadadventist.org, then click on News. If you need to reach me, send an email to ontheair at nadavenous.org. That's ontheair at nadavenous.org. That's it for this episode. We'll have another regularly scheduled episode for you next week.